Welcome back. This is Eric Wright, the host of the Disco Posse podcast, and you are listening to another fantastic conversation with the one and only Elliot Schmuckler. Elliot is the CEO and co-founder of Anomalo, and they're doing really, really fantastic stuff around understanding data cleanliness and data issues. This is the data quality platform. Super cool stuff. Elliot's got a really fantastic background in what he did in early days with LinkedIn and then much more around the rest of his career. But I really dig his approach, which reminds me to you know, go back and listen again to a couple of the spots because there's stuff that's just standout lessons here in how you can help to build teams, think about product market fit. So this is like a, another classic example of super, super startup lessons. All right, speaking of other startup lessons, uh, learn some lessons without learning them the hard way by making sure you go to the amazing partners that make this podcast happen, of course, like the fine folks over at Veeam Software, everything you need for your data protection needs, wherever you got it, whether it's on-premises, in the cloud, cloud native, even SaaS, stuff like Office 365, Teams, SharePoint. Yeah, you can hit the delete button. Bad things happen. So uh, yeah, hit the go to Veeam button. V-E-E dot A-M forward slash Disco Posse. It lets me know old Disco sent you. And on top of that, well, hey, this is a fantastic platform. So go check it out. All right. Now, next up, of course, this episode is brought to you by the folks at The Shift Group who are turning athletes into sales professionals. So if you're looking to hire super cool, driven, competitive former athletes, or maybe you just want to build your own go-to-market strategy efficiently and effectively, the Shift Group team has this incredible, diverse pool of candidates, whether it's from entry level all the way up to leadership. Plus, JR and the team are helping early stage groups just build that strategy. Start with culture, start with success, take the drive of an athlete, bring that into your organization. Fantastic folks, go back and check out JR's episode used recently on the podcast. So uh, head on over to shiftgroup.io or just drop an email right to JR. He's JR at shiftgroup.io. Uh, yeah, anyways, they're really cool. Oh, by the way, if you like coffee, go to diabolicalcoffee.com. Did I say that too fast? Go to diabolicalcoffee.com. There you go. That's better. All right, let's get to the show. Here we go. I am Elliot Schmuckler, co-founder and CEO of Anomalo, and you are listening to the Disco Posse Podcast. All right. I feel like that's always my moment where I tell people, I said, that's like the on-air light just like turns on. I'm like, all right, we're, we are live. Although we're not live, it's a live to, live to tape or live to, right. Live to MP4. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm an older fella. So I still say live to tape. <laughs> Elliot, thank you very much for joining today. I was really, really excited when I saw you come up as a guest First, because you're doing exciting stuff with the team at Anomalo. And secondly, because you're a friend of Amber Rowland and you're, you know, when I, if I take great problems, complex problems being solved with, with platforms and then, you know, seeing somebody who's standing by the story, 
uh, it is a great pairing. So I'm, I'm excited to chat. So if you don't mind, Elliot, for folks that are new to you, if you want to give a quick background and bio on, on yourself, and we'll get into the, the anomalous story. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Eric. Uh, really a pleasure to be here. Uh, in terms of myself, you know, I'm a longtime Silicon Valley executive. I've worked at some companies that hopefully your listeners know about, LinkedIn, uh, Wealthfront, recently in the news, and Instacart, also recently in the news with the pandemic. Uh, so has been a have been a product and growth leader at a bunch of companies like that for a while before founding an online. The uh, it's amazing how many LinkedIn alumni I've found recently, and uh, it's it's definitely it's funny like they, some have come from different phases in in the company, and uh, I almost want to feel like, hey, do you know like do you know Patrick Baines? He uses at LinkedIn too, but that's like saying, oh, you're from Canada, you must know Pete. He's from Halifax. So like, yeah, there's there's a lot of people that work there, <laughs> but you definitely have a storied history. A proven history at that right in the industry and then it comes to today which we're going to talk about anomalo you've got some some really great stuff obviously announcements are are live and you've had some some work that's happening so let's talk about the problem that that you're solving and and then the how which is actually super exciting yeah absolutely eric and, and i'm glad you're running into a lot of linkedin folks because it was a pretty special time uh, you know, when I was there, uh, and it really actually began a lot of my journey toward Anomalo, uh, where LinkedIn was, was one of the first places in my career where I got exposure to having a lot of data, right. And trying to use that data to make decisions. And in my case, to make the LinkedIn product better, to make it grow faster, uh, and ran into a lot of the issues back in the day. This is, you know, 10 plus years ago now. So you know, even more issues than there are today. But ran into a lot of issues with being data-driven and trying to use data. Uh, and over the subsequent years, a lot of those issues got solved. For example, LinkedIn at one point had 150 people managing our data warehouse. Wow. Right? <laughs> yeah. And today you just don't have to do that, right? Today you can spin up a great Snowflake data warehouse or in a few minutes or you know, Databricks uh, in a few minutes and off you go, right? You have a world-class place to store your data, query your data, analyze your data. But the, the issue that I've seen, despite these amazing improvements in the data stack is that the more powerful your tools, the more powerful your data warehouse, the more data you're pulling in, the more use cases you're building on top of data, the more cost you bear if your data is wrong one day or incomplete or missing or inconsistent with what you expected it to be, right? And so that's the problem that Anomaly is solving is, is how do we give teams that are working with data that are trying to make use of their corporate data, their enterprise data, trying to make decisions, trying to get insights. How do we give them something that helps to make sure that their data is actually right, that they don't have issues with their data, or if they do, that they can detect them and resolve them quickly before it impacts decisions uh, or other work. Yeah, it's amazing we 
we get so wrapped into the the buzzwordy lifestyle of talking about being data driven and everybody's got data right. lakes and data you know warehouses and data puddles and data whatever you want to call them there's all these different you know things about data is the new oil in the same way that data is the new oil i'd say data is the new crude oil and in fact, there's a lot that needs to be done to make that data really enriched information and, and gather signal from the noise because data in and of itself is not valuable. It's, it's the cleanliness of the data and the, the sort of trueness to this, the signal you need to find in order to then gather insights and info. And we, all these folks are focusing on like, the automation side, but if you do not trust the data that's going into the machine, what, giggle, right? Garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> exactly right, Eric. Exactly right, and it's 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 actually much worse today than it's been. Think about you know using machine learning, right? That's another buzzword. Everyone talks. Everyone's trying to deploy their machine learning model, do great things, you know use use those technologies in a way that a Google or an Amazon or Netflix might to improve their product. Guess what happens if you've trained a machine learning model on a particular set of data, particular characteristics, and suddenly today the input data that it receives is wildly different, right? That model doesn't produce great results for you, right? You're essentially getting a random out of that model because you're exposing it to data that it wasn't trained on. It doesn't know what to do with it, right? It has no constraints on what outputs it gives you. So, so it's even worse when you have machine learning deployed and you're expecting to feed it the data that's coming in and expecting to have you know, great results from that model. One of the things that stood out when I look at your your platform story and and it's a I'm gonna I don't mean to pick on one phrase right now. We go into all the 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 entirety of how the platform works, but automated root cause analysis. Right. And this is one of the things that uh, near and dear to me. I've been doing this as a as a business, you know, for for a decade. And it's one of the most difficult problems to solve because the speed at which the data is moving, the ability to do real time and automate a root cause analysis is, is, is almost an intractable problem. Because by the time, especially when it gets into anything that's around system design, the old classic thing is by the time you figure out what the real root cause of the problem was, you could have just rebooted the system, right? But when it comes to data, there's no reboot the system option. You it means you have to understand the you know the the forbidden fruit from which the data was gathered and then now to be able to go back and and there's a lot there's data reconciliation there there's so there's a fantastic problem in the bigness of of what it is that you're able to solve so when i saw that i was like okay we're going to dig in hard on this one but let's let's actually just talk about the platform in general and 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 how it was put together to, to solve the problem of, of data. Absolutely, Eric. And automated root cause analysis is something we're very proud of um, and something that's very unique to what we do in our approach. But to step back and give you a sense of how it works, 
you know, fundamentally what you do with Anomalo is you connect it to your data warehouse. You know, we're, we're taking advantage of the fact that companies these days are putting up these big data warehouses in the cloud and are stuffing them full of all the data that they care about, you know, centralizing all their data in one place so they can connect it together, analyze it together, and use it for all the various use cases that they have. So Anomalo just connects to your data warehouse. And then within your data warehouse, you select the tables of data that you want us to monitor. And Anomalo goes to work. So one interesting part about what we built uh, with the product is that we're, we're a machine learning first solution. When you tell us, I want you to you know, monitor this table that has my sales information, we don't ask you to tell us about the data in that table. We don't ask you to configure rules for that data or to give us parameters for what that data should be. We, to the extent possible, learn all those automatically. Uh, we connect to that data set, we query your data warehouse, grab some samples of that data, we look at it historically over time, and we actually train one or more machine learning models for each data set that you have us monitor that really seeks to understand the structure and patterns of that data set. That way, when new data comes in, the machine learning model can say, hey, this new data that came in, is it somehow different from the structure that I learned from the data set's history? And if it is, well, now that may be an issue in the data that we should tell someone about. This is the point where if it wasn't for the fact that I have to stay in camera frame and my microphone arm is not too long, I would stand on the chair and say, oh, captain, my captain. <laughs> <laughs> the, the idea, and this is the, the, the core of next generation systems architectures and design is ultimately the system needs to be responsible for its own outcome. And by letting the data drive its own, like the understanding of the data itself versus the what we believe is the creators of the table that is actually in there is such a fundamental shift. And it's like, it's taking all those assumptions and turning them upside down, which is amazing. Because I, time and time again, you know, we hire a sea of DBAs and I've worked in massive insurance companies, worldwide companies, investment firms, explosive companies, all sorts of exciting stuff. And there's just, we've got quants, we've got DBAs, we've got all these people and they're, they're coming in trying to make the data fit into a thing that they believe it should fit into. And every time you're five years into that project, it's that original, like the diagram, there's like monstrous UML diagram that's on someone's wall that they yeah. printed on like five pitch font and it's the size of the entire room. Well, it's it's dead because the moment you went live with the system, everything changed, you know, this day in the life moved. And from that point on, the best thing you can do is hope to keep up. So you've you're basically saying you you can shed that wherever you are today is the, in fact the beginning of forever because you are now adaptively understanding the data. That's exactly right, Eric. And in fact, I would argue those those old school approaches which you're describing, you know, they worked up to a point, 
right? We have customers where, you know, they've spent 20, 30 years, right, with that approach and they made it work and they have, you know, 100 people doing this work and all this kind of stuff. But at the scale that folks are ingesting data today and with the different types of data that are coming in and the number of applications that they're trying to run on top of the data, there's just no way that you can continue with that approach. I mean, we have a customer right now of Anomalo that has a table where they're adding 24 billion records a day, right? (laughs) (laughs) There's just no way that they're gonna come up with any sort of manual process or rules-based process or schema-based process to to you know, fully make sure that all of those rows are conforming to something, right? They can they can take some cuts at it, but the, there's no way. They need something that's adaptable, and and more importantly, they need a machine, right? Our machine within Anomalo has no problem going through 24 billion rows, right? Or a sample of those rows if it needs to, and looking for patterns, right? Uh, that's going to be pretty challenging you know, using any kind of manual or, or human-driven approach. Now, I, I guess this is where the, the thing will come in where, as you said, like there are there are purposes and requirements to sort of, to define the standard by which data is stored. And ultimately, because there's front-end applications that need to understand the schema, there are, there are sort of bound things to the behavior of the data within the, the structure. But as you said, we've got much more that's coming in, you know, whether we call it IoT, whether we call it whatever kinds of many, many sensors, and those sensors could be anything, could be, you know, 15 different application signals that are coming through that each has their own sort of structural form that's different. The fact that you could then, this gives you the freedom to be able to co-locate disparate data, and then ultimately that data you can find me. I mean, observability as a practice we talked about it you know six seven years ago observability wasn't even a word outside of of physics and chemistry and then you know so shout out to charity majors who i still will always say she is the 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 creator of of the word of observability as a practice but observability is about bringing unstructured data together and then looking for patterns and signals within it. And the problem is it's 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 a like a high cardinality data is incredibly difficult to be able to pool together and then make decisions on and you and systematically even refine it, let alone, you know, get to the point where the data can ultimately create its own structure through, you know, having your platform look at it. So I don't yeah, mean to totally. wow over this because it's just like like the the com the computer science folks are just like there's there's no way this is real. <laughs> 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 it's a seemingly intractable problem. And I say that because it was intractable up until, you know, like now the technology and the capabilities are there where it's it's more accessible to do this and and you know, but it's a very unique challenge that you're solving. Yeah, absolutely, Eric. And we see ourselves as very much an extension, kind of the observability movement, right? And they're great observability tools for other dimensions of operations, right? Data observability is actually an even more challenging problem than, say, operational observability. You know, is my server up, 
right? Those right. kinds of things. Because data uh, by necessity is chaotic, you know, uh, chaotic to a large extent. You know, what my users do with my product on Fridays might be dramatically different but what they do with my product on Sundays. Uh, and even more so different if Sunday is, you know, a long week, part of a long weekend, right? Or Friday is a holiday, um, or we just launched a new product on Monday. And so there's a lot of dimensions of variability, a lot of chaos in, in actual data that's coming in. User data, you know, uh, third-party data, those kinds of things. Uh, there's a lot of chaos there above and beyond sort of the classic observability data of, you know, what is my machine doing? Is it, is it up? Is it, is it down? Is it processing transactions? So, so definitely a challenging problem, but yeah, the technology has also improved dramatically. You know, modern machine learning techniques can do a lot. And modern data warehouses are also incredibly powerful. You can ask them to summarize a lot of what's going on with the data quickly. So you can analyze it. Yeah, this is the, I think sort of the biggest battleground that we're seeing in, in the industry is this idea of, of putting data into a place. And then, because right now we know that the technology is arriving, if not has already arrived, to do really amazing things with our data. And the one thing that, you know, think of the early application design. It was like, this is the data that we're going to need in order to make decisions around future architectures. So they basically throw away everything but this, right? It is it is purely wheat versus chaff, except that they threw away the chaff. And then at some point, especially when you get into retail and you get into all the industrial, there's so many use cases where they said like, we got to keep the chaff. Hang on to it because we don't know there may actually be a different seed hiding in the chaff. And the economics of storing data have gotten significantly better. And then again, so like what's happening now is really people are sort of holding on to it and saying that this may be useful one day and I can't risk that I throw it away and find out that it would have been useful. It's it really is a, a ripe opportunity for, for what you and the team are doing. Yeah, exactly right, Eric. It's really a sea change. And I saw this first 10 plus years ago, you know, when I was at LinkedIn, coming back to kind of our, at the beginning of the podcast, we were collecting everything, right? Every bit of data that we could. And we were maybe using, you know, 5% of it. Right, but it it was it was a cultural thing that the team had picked up from other companies like PayPal, right? Early in the internet's history, that you got to collect everything because it might be helpful in the future. And we would regularly discover new ways to use that data that we weren't using, right? And it, we regularly found ways to take that data that maybe in the old days you would have discarded and actually innovate with it. Uh, and build new product features based on it. And so that's exactly right. And, and that's been a cultural transformation uh, throughout uh, you know, the enterprise world where, where now when we, when we talk to customers, they're almost always storing all the data, right? They're not throwing data away anymore uh, like they used to. They may not be using all of it, right? Maybe they're on their way to try to use more and more of it, but they're definitely storing it and they're centralizing it and they're making it accessible. 
Yeah, I say as a guy who's, it's hard to see in the uh, in the out of focus view. There's, there's about thirty five decks of cards over there. I'm not going to use all of them, but you never know. You know, I buy three of each pack that I get. I'm a bit of a collector in that way, and, and really in in the data world now, this truly is what we're seeing more and more companies are realizing. And like, it it is a a combination of many things, but. I'd love to talk about this idea that many people believe today is the beginning of a lot of this, when in fact, this has been a well-formed idea for quite some time. It's just that it was maybe not broadly accessible or broadly understood outside of like a core group of like, obviously people in financial services, we've got insurance stuff like there are organizations that have long held that their data needs to be used later. So let's just keep, keep holding on to it. You never know. But it's always a funny thing. Just like when any band suddenly becomes very popular, you're like, I saw them 10 years ago in college. <laughs> so I don't know who you think is brand new, but these, these folks have been around for a while. This concept I think is probably more, widely understood in some circles. Where has this been prevalent before? Yeah, well, I kind of trace it, you know, at least in, in my experience of it, is is really a, a Silicon Valley phenomenon, at least to the extreme extent that we see it now. Obviously, financial services companies have been storing data and using fraud models and that kind of thing for a long time. But this idea that all of your data needs to be in one place, right? Uh, and even if you're not using it, eventually I may want that connection for something, is I think a very Silicon Valley you know, phenomenon. Uh, Silicon Valley companies that I've been at always kind of strive to have this centralization. We want one place with everything. Oh, we're using a third-party tool? That's not okay. We got to import the data from that third-party tool into our one place. You know, literally engineers would come to me and be like, Elliot, you can't, you can't put up this tool. We don't have, we're going to lose that data right uh that goes into the tool we need an api to get it out right and that would be a hard requirement uh to using using a third-party tool for something and so i i think i think that was the core of it uh and that enabled companies like the googles the amazons the netflix to do very powerful things and now everyone's kind of realizing that that was a really big advantage we work actually with a lot of financial services customers and they'll they've always had this idea of using data and they have some you know amazingly expert teams on fraud modeling and all this this kind of stuff they're still in silo mode they have data all over the place right they never really bought in until very recently into this idea of centralization uh into putting all of it in one place and i would posit that the still today the most the most widely used tool for data analysis is excel like it's right I, it's just bizarre like we've become it's 2022 and you know i if microsoft microsoft should have divested excel it would be the most it would be worth more than amazon right now <laughs> absolutely absolutely and, and if you think about it, excel is the most decentralized type of data you can have. I literally have my own copy <laughs> of the data yeah. in my sheet, right? And there's ways to sync it now and all this kind of stuff. But 
uh, it really is a, is a very different world from the one I think we're, we're heading to. I've seen this for having supported, you know, big financials for a long time in my own career in, in the tech side. And I remember getting these calls for some of you like, oh, I need to restore this Excel, you know, documents. I, why, why did it, what did you delete it? Uh, no, it just got corrupted. Like, how did it get corrupted? Well, I don't know. And you look at it and it's a two gigabyte Excel file. Like this is, you've, you've stretched the limits of this platform. This is not meant to do this. And that was pre, you know, understanding of what the data warehouse opportunity was many, many years ago. Then now, you know, even today, they'll put the data centrally, but then a lot of the offloading of the processing is done, you know, sort of very client side. And then more and more we, it's, but at least the centralization of data has become a, you know, data goes here first. It's funny you mentioned this thing about sort of Silicon Valley's many Silicon Valley folks have always understood that the data has intrinsic value. And so we should always keep our data close. Conversely, a lot of organizations are being told by those very same Silicon Valley companies, you should offload everything as a service. So it's it's a, a an interesting sort of dichotomy in, in the approach, but more, I see more people are saying, we're going to use the service, but we want the data to stay centralized or at least you know, keep a copy of it centrally. Uh, and that's a fairly recent shift in some of the customers that I've talked to. Yeah. And it's a, we see that as a very common pattern. You know, for example, if you're running transactions through Stripe, right, big Silicon Valley company, right, where you're outsourced or payment processing. Uh, well, very often we see it in our customer's data set. You're going to pull out that data from Stripe, right? You're going to get the full log of everything that's happened, put it in your data warehouse, right? Now you can connect any transactional event on your product, on your e-commerce website to that Stripe payment, right? And now you can also analyze that Stripe data in the same way, you know, what percentage of my payments failed? What is my credit card distribution, right? How many folks got got this special discount? So so we see that pattern quite a bit. And in fact, when we started on Outlook, we were counting on the fact that this was gonna become the norm, that more and more companies were going to use these hosted managed services, right? But we're gonna pull the data back into their data warehouse so that many companies would end up with a copy of Stripe data, right? Sitting in their data warehouse. And, and that would allow us to do a better job uh, because our models would see many instances of Stripe's data sitting in many warehouses that we could learn and generalize from. So we were counting a little bit on that. And in fact, we were seeing that play out. So let's talk about Anomalo Pulse, and right. this is exciting stuff. Let dig in a bit on on the product side, on on what what we have there. Yeah, absolutely, Eric. So Anomalo Pulse is is a new kind of visualization dashboard product that we launched as part of Anomalo, and it's in response to a question that we've been getting to a lot from a lot of our customers. You know, they deploy Anomalo, they start monitoring some of their tables, they have issues that come up that they resolve. Very often we talk to the VP of data, the chief data officer, and their question is, you know, Elliot, how do I know how well my organization is doing in monitoring my data in terms of my data quality? 
you know, what can I look at that says you're improving based on all this stuff you're, you're doing or you're not improving based on all this stuff you're doing. You need to do more. You need to focus on, on this area. Uh, and sometimes it's even, uh, you know, a team-based, an accountability type question, which is how do I know which of my teams are doing well in terms of the quality of their data and which teams are not really managing? their data quality and sort of need more help or need more focus in that area. And so we built that envelope post really to answer that question. Uh, and so you can log in and you can see an organizational view of how you're doing on, on data quality. You know, how many data tables do you have? What percentage of those are actually actively being monitored for data issues, right? If that's a small percentage, well, there's probably a lot of issues that you're not catching. Right? If it's a big percentage, you're, you're doing well. Of the tables that are being monitored, how often do they have an issue? Right, or Which ones have issues all the time versus every once in a while? That can give you a sense of, well, where are the trouble spots uh, in your data and where are successes in your data? Which things are sort of clean uh, and which things regularly have uh, issues? And then, of course, you can break that down by team or you know, schema in your data warehouse and all those kinds of things. So that's Pulse. You know, for the first time, you can start to develop a sense of how are we doing overall in terms of managing, monitoring the quality of our data. Now, let's dive into the tech a bit, because I know a lot of folks would ask things like, what's the, what's the sort of impact and capability mix where you talked about sampling, you know, the, the taking first samples and then ultimately, you know, training and then throwing it at the entirety of the data set. There's different phases at which you would see adoption, but then also what's sort of the, 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 the processing impact? What's the, you know, where do I fit this in my life cycle of data when it comes to, because you know, all these applications, Got this weird thing where those data, the data part of the organization quite often is a very standalone group that's, or a bunch of standalone groups. And then the application groups are, are functionally separated. And then you've got the CIO who sort of has responsibility for it. You've, there's a lot of, a lot of intermingling. And that's why, you know, where does it fit in, in, in sort of who would own Anomalo? Right, right. Great question, Eric. So what we often see, and again, this varies by organization and because and, this is also kind of a new area, right? How you become more data-driven and transform yourself. There's, there's still a lot of, um, you know, thinking and evolution in terms of how these various teams and roles are structured. But what we see emerging at our most sophisticated customers is a kind of data platform team inside the organization. And so the data platform team is kind of responsible for what are the tools we have in our data stack. And the data platform team in turn has internal customers, right? Which could be the business teams, the application teams that want to use data, right? But they go to the data platform team to sort of get the tools for accessing and using data. Very often the data platform team is the one that owns the data warehouse, right? They made the selection of which data warehouse it is. They kind of own its, its access and organization, right? 
they may not be the team that feeds the data warehouse with data that might be distributed or that might be a data engineering team, but they kind of own the data warehouse uh, and how it exists and how it works. And then they might also own things like BI tools. How do we build dashboards on top of this data warehouse data? And so Anomalo fits into that uh, most easily, which is you know the data platform team that's sort of responsible for what are the tools that we have as an organization to manage our work with data. The thing that I like that I believe the industry's finally gotten around to is that there is no such thing as a single pane of glass. <laughs> you know, X. We've we've learned that that's just a. It was a it was a sales pitch for a lot of organizations that you've got forty seven tools. I'm going to say the tool that will get rid of the other, you know, forty seven. You know, and, and in the end, that no, you now have forty eight tools, is what you've got, and is true because even if you get it right, even you say, okay, good, we've got you know three disparate data warehouses, we're going to merge them together, put them in one fantastically huge single beautiful spot, and then you're all good. No one does that, but even if you do, let's just hypothetically say the magic occurred. And then they announced that you've just acquired another company. Well, guess what? <laughs> they have seven data warehouses. They've got some on-prem. They've got some in the cloud. They've got three different clouds. And because they just acquired two companies, like there, there's never a final resting place for data. Where, yeah. where does this make the anomalous story important because it seems to me like this is where you can really shine that it, you're not saying you got to put all your data here so i can i can go get it yeah i mean we, we are counting on it's going to be in the cloud right and so i think that's a that's you know the migration to the cloud is is a freight train that's not going to stop uh and uh we are counting on that eric and, and but we do support multiple different places that it might be, right? Or multiple different platforms that you might set up in your organization uh, to query that data. And, and you can view all of them in one space in an envelope and set up monitoring for all of them. So we have folks that have Snowflake and they have a Google BigQuery uh, right. data warehouse. I, I don't know why they have to, right? Maybe it was <laughs> an acquisition, right? But it happens and that's okay. Right. You just connect the Nomlo to both, right? And as far as you're concerned, all of your data is now um, now in one place. So absolutely, I do think there's there's a pretty big push to cent to centralize to get to one, and and of course that's tough. And uh, I don't expect everyone to to do it perfectly. Uh, this is actually one area where. Silicon Valley company startups have an advantage because they're building from scratch, right? You right. Don't start out with seven data warehouses that you need to combine. You start out with the one you choose, right? That you need to grow over time. Um, and so there's a little bit of an advantage to newer firms, but I do think there's there's strong pressure and kind of strong momentum uh, to to get, get unified and get centralized. Yeah, and even if, if not for continuous real time, at least the centralization for offline and and near real time processing is going to be, it has to be done in that central location. Because what you, we, I often see this pattern, right? Well, they'll have a 
an app stack that's Google centric. And then I'll have another app stack that's AWS centric. And maybe there's legal or other requirements like business requirements that, that drive those decisions. Like architecturally, it's no one would say it's a great idea, but then now you've got the challenge of centralizing that, that data to a place for processing. And I think they've pretty much accepted, like, like I said, the cost of doing storage of this data is not, you know, it's not, it's not significant compared to, you know, the, the continuous processing. Like even like at Snowflake, it's funny you mentioned like, if there's somebody, I've got data inside BigQuery and then data inside Snowflake, which if I were to look underneath the covers, probably runs on top of BigQuery. <laughs> <laughs> or like there's whatever it is, it's, they're running on the same stack that you're running on. It's just that they've abstracted it to do additional things. So we will see yeah. still those patterns of, of multiple spots, but the, the, the central, like one pool of common data, I think is where people are heading, whether it's the, that real time online, sorry, I'm like old school mainframe, like talk about batch and, and online like we will see that that stuff happen where you'll have a lot of stuff that's you know moving to that batch style but it's going to be held in in a central spot yeah and and in some cases you can get there fast if you're uh if you do a data lake type approach where right. your data is stored in the cloud right but it's just stored as files uh in, in cloud storage somewhere and now multiple different warehouses can process that data. You can hook it up to Snowflake, you can hook it up to BigQuery, you can hook it up to Databricks, right? You choose uh, which tool uh, you want to use to process that data, but your data actually is in one place. Um, and so we also see that as well, which is kind of a way to skirt around the unifications to say, well, my data is in one place, but I might have multiple tools to query it. Now let's talk about the team because I know you know we've talked about some of your backgrounds, and I'd love to to dig into the the rest of the founding team and and what your collective you know view and and approach uh, drew you all together. Yeah, absolutely. So my co-founder is Jeremy Stanley. We were together at Instacart. I was the chief growth officer trying to get Instacart to grow faster, and he was the VP of data science for Instacart and actually had been a you know data science leader for many, many years. Uh, you know, he tells stories about you know developing predictive models for mining companies to predict, you know, the mine that was going to have an accident next. Right. Uh, and those kinds of things. Um, and together we've recruited a lot of our favorite technical folks for a majority technical team uh, and have also recruited some of our favorite data scientists, right? Folks that we knew uh, would need a tool like Anomalo that are actually now building that tool essentially for themselves. So Vicky, who uh, was the lead engineer on, on the Pulse product that we just talked about, is a classic example of something like this. Uh, you know, someone uh, Jeremy and I worked with and someone who, you know, in a different life would have been the user of Anomalo and now is building uh, the product she would have wanted to have years ago. Uh, so that's what, how we approach building the team. When it comes to this, right, you've been through different organizations and especially given that, you know, your role as chief, you know, in the growth side of, of things, 
So you're, you're, you're like a very friendly, nicer version of Chamath Palpatia. <laughs> 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 but uh, the, the human aspect and merging with the systematic aspect of growth, you've seen it at the growth phases. So how does that influence this, the, the initial phase? Because seeding the company but having an eye on growth gives you an interesting sort of split of, of how you, you have to look at things. Yeah, Eric, I mean, I'll be honest with you, they're pretty different worlds, right? And, and folks ask me for growth advice all the time, as I'm sure they do to Chamath, or maybe, you know, he's moved past that. But, um, and the truth is the early days of a company finding product market fit, getting those first few passionate users has nothing to do with, you know, what we used to do at LinkedIn and Wellfront, Instacart on, on growing once you found your core set of users and thinking about, okay, how do we make this much larger, much faster? Uh, so those are very different worlds. Uh, and, uh, you know, it hasn't been a huge adjustment for me, but it's a little bit of adjustment to realize that, you know, in the early days, you're not operating with a lot of data, right? Despite being a data company, you know, our own in the early days, our own set of data that we could use was, was really tiny, <laughs> right? Uh, as we were trying to get to those first in, initial users of the NLO product. So, you know, there's an adjustment where you realize that you're, you don't have a ton of data, you don't have a ton of things that you figured out that you could double down into, right? A lot of growth mechanics that growth leaders that larger companies use is they just figure out what already works and they find ways to do more of that, right? Um, you don't have that at the early stage. You don't know what's gonna work. Uh, so so that's an adjustment, but, but the thing that's universal is the idea of experimentation whether it's in the early days of a seed stage company or it's in the growth context of a larger company, you should constantly be experimenting and learning, trying new things and seeing if they work, right? Uh, and in a larger company, you can direct your experiments more, you know the characteristics of things that have worked in the past, so you can be very selective in your experiments. In an earlier stage company, you're, you're kind of trying everything, you're going with your gut. A little bit more, but that idea of experimenting and learning uh, is definitely still still a universal thing. Yeah, it it is funny though. Need you, you look at like the you realize how lucky you are when you've got the pool to draw from, and yes, it's it's why you see you know f building teams, founding teams, building teams, growing teams are often like the stages of a rocket where they truly just will say like the, the first stage of the rocket gets us to this altitude and then we shed the stage. And I've seen that, you know, so it's, it's now interesting that you coming in as a founder, you are going to have to survive different stages that were previously not experienced. So it's, it's, it's an, ex it must be an exciting, and an interesting world to to now really see this, you know, from zero to one phase of the company. Yeah, for sure, Eric. And I'm actually super cognizant of the phases you've talked about because I want to make sure I adjust. Right. Um, I have many experiences in past companies where I came in in the growth stage, right, 
uh, as a growth leader and I have, you know, this portfolio of techniques and strategies, but the founders are still in the founding stage. Right? They haven't made the leap. They're not real. They don't haven't realized yet that you have data, you have a base from which to build Like You can double down into things that have already worked. You can be selective. Right. And so, uh, and you know, in those situations, I've had to convince folks that, that my approach is a good one, demonstrate results and prove that my approach is the right one for that stage of the company. And so I'm very cognizant of that and, and making sure that when that stage comes, and I think we're, we're you know, inching it, into that growth stage now, uh, in, in our company's trajectory and Anomalous trajectory, I want to be very cognizant that I kind of make that switch in my head and say, okay, we can, we can start to use some of those growth strategies now. Yeah, it's now that you have those levers available, you're you expose those levers to the business all of a sudden, but you have to build and discover those levers to begin with. And how how did you find that very early phase, you know, in seeking product market fit? You talked about the customer centric hiring in that you've effectively built the team on people that would be consumers of the product so that that will very strongly influence the way you engage with those early prospects and customers. So what is what was that that first phase of of finding the the development partner customers and such like? Yeah, yeah. Uh you know, to be honest, Eric, it was it was easier than I thought. Uh because precisely because of the team we built, we could go to our network and we could find customers from our network. So all of our initial customers, all of our initial design partners were folks that we kind of got connected to through our network and we met and we had relationships with. Um, and they agreed to help us out. And eventually they became paying customers uh, of Anomalo. Um, and so that's that's a pretty powerful way. You know, if you, if you have a network or if you can you kind of recruit a team that has a network into your customers and has access to your potential customers. That's a pretty powerful way to get started. Even LinkedIn back in the day, Eric actually started like that. The first folks invited to LinkedIn were in Reed Hoffman's network, yeah. right? He invited all of his, all of the PayPal folks and his VC friends, right? And that formed the core of the original user base. And he could get them to accept because he had a relationship with them and he was Reed Hoffman. Um, you know, without that network, it would have been a much harder, much harder road. Yeah, it's it is very interesting. And as far as though product market fit is often a challenge to find, depending on the friction in which you can consume the product. And you, that's why I admire your approach in that you're you've got obviously data has to be in the cloud. All right. It's kind of a binary thing, you know, so it's. But you're not saying that you need to relocate your data in order for us to be able to make use of it. It's that is the the big thing. There's a, a much lower friction to bring Anomalo in, which versus many other companies, they find this thing of like, yeah, we're going to do strict, amazing stuff with your data. We just need to move it all over into our data warehouse in order to do it. And it's you know we find in networking. I used to struggle with this all the time, especially on the consumer side. Every single product you'd buy that has fantastic network monitoring, these different tools, is, oh, yeah, all you need to do is make sure that we're routing all your data through this endpoint. Like, we do that seven times already. 
for all these other things that we use, I can't continue to reroute my data. And eventually they learned that thanks to software-defined networking, you can put virtual taps all over the place. And, and it was, but it used to really be physical. Like it, that's how Gigamon became a business because the idea of aggregated span ports so that you could monitor data flow, <laughs> that, that created an opportunity. And now if you told somebody, I need you to route your data through something, they'd be like, you're, you're nuts. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, that's right, Eric. Lowering friction is a big deal. I, I, I would argue lowering friction is one of the, one of the most innovative things we can do in, in many, many areas. Uh, and you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, Anomal doesn't require your data to go into our data warehouse. In fact, we will often deploy now where we just sit in the same cloud environment as your data warehouse. Right, so your data never even has to leave your cloud, right? We just push our application to your data rather than your data having to stream to us or anything like that, or us having to query it and send some results back to our cloud. We just sit where the data is. Uh, and then the other element of friction that we reduced, Eric, is just the setup friction, right? Um, because you don't have to set up rules or, or tell us what to look for uh, when you set up Anomalo, that's another thing that our customers really resonate with is you can do a few clicks and you're monitoring your data now, right? And you can fine tune it and, and customize it if you wish, if you want to go deeper, but you don't have to, to get it up and running. So you don't require a, a $180,000 professional services engagement to go through a proof of concept then. <laughs> That's good. Which is tough. Not right? at all. Not at all. And, and I, I say it you know, I uh, partially in jest and mostly tongue in cheek, I guess, because I know that's out there, right? Like the complexity of the problem that you're solving usually would require a lot of human interaction and a lot of human development of understanding the business, understanding the policies, understanding the flow. So yeah, this is, you know, for God, I hate to say this word because it came to mind right away. It's like, it's game changing. Like, and in that it is fundamentally changing how easy it is to get started. And then at that point, now platform implementation wise, what's the most common time frame that folks expect if they say like, hey, all right, I, I saw Elliot on LinkedIn doing something. I'm going to reach out and I want Anomalo in my environment. Yeah. Uh, you know, pretty pretty fast. Obviously, there's legal things where we have agreements and, and security stuff and all those kinds of things. But deploying Anomalo in your environment probably takes about an hour uh, to get it up and running, uh, and then maybe another hour to get to get some things configured, and you're up and running. Right. So we literally, when we have a new customer, we book two one-hour meetings: one to install the product and one to onboard you into the product. And at the end of that onboarding, you already have it configured and monitoring you know, critical data um, in your data warehouse. So, so that's all it takes. Wow. You've won the friction game. Absolutely. <laughs> this is, this is the, the, <laughs> the most friction-free uh, implementation. And uh, yeah, I mean, look, truth is I, 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 what I love about this is I can I can be way more excited about your product than you need to be, because for folks that do listen to the podcast, they know you know you, no one comes on here because they're they they say we want to you know 
we need to talk about our products. In fact, usually the, I'm the one that's pulling it out of people because I am excited mm -hmm. about what you're doing. And again, seeing my own experiences in this type of implementation and the complexity that we've usually faced, it's, it's pretty big. And I guess it really, it goes to the core of, of the team and, and, and your approach, which means that future growth, future developments, it will carry that model forward because that that culture seems to be like ingrained in in the ethos of of the company, which is refreshing, right? That's that's where it needs to be instead of having to, you know, just take old methods and then gently refactor them. You're like, no, this is we're we're throwing about the old game plan, and this is how it goes now. <laughs> it's kind of refreshing. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, Eric. Uh, I mean, we're definitely trying. Still an early stage company still small so still a lot of a lot of things to build uh, and a lot of work to do but you know we're, we're definitely trying and we're pretty excited about the momentum we're seeing and how well the product is working for our customers i guess i should ask one important question really who is your ideal customer you know uh, that that will be able to to quickly find that fit and and value out of the anomalo platform yeah, absolutely. So, you know, anyone with a cloud data warehouse, that's that's the first step, right? If you haven't set up a data warehouse yet, then probably you're you're a little too early in your kind of data maturity, data life cycle. If you have a data warehouse, that's great. We also look for folks where where they've built out a data team, right? So again, you know, if you have if you don't have much of a data team, probably you just aren't powering enough things with data yet experience the pain of data issues and data quality but even once you have a data team of five or so well now you're probably feeling that pain uh and we can definitely help you yeah odds are as soon as you once you throw the first person at it there's a reason it gets to five fast because <laughs> they start feeling that pain pretty quickly uh, I mean, yeah. I remember back, it used to be like ETL people. And that was a whole big thing. It was just like, just getting data between places and they'd have teams doing ETL. Then you got DBAs doing the back end. It's like all of this thing. It doesn't, we've moved the function and the roles a bit, but in the end, there still is a lot of that really understanding where business logic comes in. And, and this is why this agnostic data driven and data, literally data powered approach that you've got makes the the move to taking on the platform a lot easier because it's time and time again, again, it's like you come in, the first thing you have to do is set up 17 interviews with product people. And they're yeah. even arguing in between about how it really should go. And, and they're, they sort of unpack this awful family history of of where their data came from you can just be like it's okay no problem just uh, just plug this in <laughs> and we'll be back in an hour and then we'll talk about what, what your data really says yeah yeah no exactly right eric and what a lot of companies are are doing is is because of this issue because of how difficult it is to kind of get to ground truth synthesize is they've actually just decentralized the management of data right so product managers, well, you own this data set, right? You know, you figure out what's going on here. 
And it's actually another reason to get a tool like Anomalo. Right? We are a no-code, low-code tool, right? You set us up and it goes, and we're going to root cause things and visualize things for you in a way that almost anyone can understand. Uh, we don't require you to kind of understand obscure error messages or parse logs or even query the data yourself, right? We're, we're going to do a lot of that work for you. So we're actually accessible to anyone in the organization who cares about a particular data set. Uh, and so we've actually helped a lot of our customers kind of complete that decentralization uh, that or democratization to sort of be able to push the responsibility for that data set to the product manager, right, or to the team that cares about that data set, rather than having to have folks in data engineering or other functions sort of synthesize all of that information, right, from, from all the various parties. Now, one thing I'll ask, and I gotta hate to, I hate to ask a question, which I know can be a tough question, is how do you deal with things like data separation for you know, regulatory stuff? Uh, you've got role-based access control, lots of different access control lists that are spread throughout these data sets. Where does that come into how it interacts with Anomalo? Yeah, I mean, we've had to build all that, Eric. So, you know, we have a financial services customer right now, actually two of them, that um, where you know data is heavily restricted. If you're in the in the mortgage group, you cannot see the data from the banking group, and, and vice versa. And so we had to build that functionality. We have you know, separate teams and organizations within Anomalo. Anomalo itself can see everything, but if you log in from the banking team, you only see the banking data, right? And if you log in from the mortgage team, you only see the mortgage data. And so we've had to build those access controls. And of course we integrate with things like Okta uh, and other tools that the enterprise might have to sort of appropriately, you know, associate users with teams and, and with the access that they should have. Good, that wasn't so much of a curveball then. All right, I was like, this is probably not the question you just sneak in at the end of the podcast, like the hardest possible question. Let's talk, let's talk to the CISO right now, but uh, so it's good, yeah. and. You know, I another thing that we definitely are seeing more and more of is this, you know, where the ethics of data usage and the ethics of data storage and, and the, the business rules that are wrapped around that and, and the legal and regulatory stuff, it's it creates a, a real challenge, you know, and I look, the truth is most of these teams they do their best, but quite often they don't they don't even realize how sort of exposed some of those data are to each other because you know what we believe is this true data isolation. There's many interconnected systems, so there's always a path to to get from one place to another. But it is, you know, I think top of mind for for CISOs and chief data officer, right? I guess is is yeah. Is that a, is that a role that's really uh becoming a, a common like ciso got it right that came in with sarbanes oxley and other regulatory requirements they're like you need a an officer who is charged with this function but the chief data officer it, it's still kind of a fuzzy function yeah i mean it, it's not as well adopted but it's coming we see it all the time right that's typically you know, we typically interact with the chief data officer or someone who's active as right. that officer. Maybe they have a VP of data title or, or, or something along those lines. 
But yeah, it's coming. There's enough complexity in the data that companies use and in the systems. Powering that data and the data teams are large enough where you need an executive driving your data strategy, right? And data is critical enough, as you said, you know, data is the new crude oil. Well, you need an executive who's going to, you know, mine that oil, if you will, and, and, and figure out how to process it. So uh, we, we see it happening quite a bit. Um, and even at, at older companies that have been around for a long time, right, where maybe data was part of their, you know, IT team and the CIO used to be in charge of data. Now they're either opening up or they have a chief data officer. The other aspect of this, Eric, is uh, folks have realized that managing data systems and getting value from data is different than engineering, right? right. It's different than building other systems, different than building applications or setting up networking. You know, it's a different skill set. And so that uh, also kind of created an opportunity for the chief data officer to emerge because they can they can truly have that data skill set rather than starting with, you know, with an engineering skill set and, and learning about data as folks used to do in the past. Well, they effectively become the F1 driver to a fantastic F1, you know, car team, right? The engineers that build that car will never be able to drive it and get it to perform so they have to have a specialist that's like, this is your your singular function is get the most value for the least expense and least risk out of these assets and, and allows them to shape the strategy for it. It's kind of funny if you think like 20 years ago, especially you would, you'd hand somebody a business card and it would say VP of data. They'd be like, no, seriously, this is a joke, right? What does that, what does, what does that even mean? Like, this is that's not a real thing. <laughs> How many people do you have on your team? You're like, no, I'm in charge of the data. <laughs> but <laughs> we've come a long way in, you know, a seemingly short time as far as the dawn of earth, at least. <laughs> yeah, you're definitely right, Eric. And I love the Formula One driver analogy. I've been even surprised that they're now product managers of data, right. right? I was in product manager for a long time and normally product managers are for, you know, features. You can be the product manager of this page or this flow. Well, data is so important and so integral to product work that we see a lot of customers where they have a product manager of data, right? Uh, it is kind of, you know, coordinates and orchestrates and strategizes a lot of the things that they do in the data world. It's where we're going. And, and, and I say it's where we're going, it's where it's already going, you know, and I think yeah. this is even, you know, any organization at least should have a sense of what their strategy is, whether they're tactically moving towards it is a different thing. It's, it's kind of like, you know, sustainability at recent one. I, I've, every time somebody says to me, yeah, we've got a sustainability initiative is that's fantastic. What have you done in the last 12 months to enact things towards this strategy? Like, oh, yeah, we've got a, we've got a, a steering committee. <laughs> like, okay, perfect. <laughs> but data is a, a very real thing. Not that sustainability isn't, I, should, I shouldn't pick on that, but it's like people say they've got a data strategy. What have you done about it? And this is a place where, where you can find a great fit. So. All right, I am so happy. Thank you. So again, Elliot, uh, if you want to give out, what's the best way if people want to find out more about Anomalo? Obviously, I'll have links to the website and such if they want to reach out to you and uh, maybe dig in a little bit more on, on the platform itself. What's the best way to do that? 
Absolutely. So just go to anomalo.com. It's A-N-O-M-A-L-O. It's kind of like anomaly, except with an O at the end instead of a Y. Um, check it out. There are demos there. There's documentation. There's all kinds of resources on what the product can do. And feel free to contact us there if you want to try it. And Eric, thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure. Well, I got to say one quick thing too. For for people that are about data, you got bloody good designers. Like your your website is just very captivating. I I really enjoy the 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 user experience of of the way you do your so. Like I said so for people that are that are living in data, you've got a bloody good design mind on you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're big believers that you can't get insights out of data unless it's it's visualized in a really compelling way, right? That's and that's been something we've learned over the years. And so, yeah, we have great folks that are not just great designers, but are great visualizers of data uh, that contribute their expertise to the product. Uh, so absolutely, thank you. If, uh, if, if visualization didn't matter, people would drink s sushi smoothies. We don't. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's even disturbing for a moment to think about it. But yet, <laughs> when given the right you know, visualization fundamentally different and, and this is it. So, well, congratulations on all of the recent successes and, and on future successes that you and the team are going to experience, Elliot. Thanks very much. Thank you so much, Eric. Thanks for having me.